Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning's sermon is 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remind us, if, if nothing else this morning, that you would remind us just what a treasure we hold in our hands. Having a copy of your word, multiple copies of your word, Access to it all the time. What a treasure we possess. So Holy Spirit, as this word is opened, I pray that you would convict us, that you would change us, that we would leave this place with a renewed confidence in the word with a deepened love for the Word, with a greater appetite to study the Word, so that we might know You better, O triune God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In 2009, a man named Ed Stetzer was interviewing the very well-known and influential mega-church pastor Andy Stanley. The interview covered a wide range of topics related to pastoral ministry and church leadership, but at one point, Stetzer asked Stanley this very specific question. What do you think about preaching verse-by-verse messages through books of the Bible? Andy Stanley responded, Guys that preach verse-by-verse through books of the Bible, that is just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the Scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. Now listen carefully to what Stanley goes on to say. All Scripture is equally inspired, but not all Scripture is equally applicable or relevant to every stage of life. My challenge is to read culture and to read an audience and ask, what is the felt need? Or perhaps, what is more important, what is an unfelt need they need to feel that I can address? Because if they don't feel it, then they won't address it. 
Friends, not only is Andy Stanley dead wrong in his general assessment of expository preaching, but in his effort to better serve his congregation, I would suggest that he has placed himself very dangerously at the center of his ministry and his preaching while ignoring the sufficiency of Scripture, the centrality of the gospel, and the authority of God over his people. Redeemer Bible Church has been and will continue to be unwaveringly committed to expository preaching. The overwhelming pattern of our weekly preaching will be the systematic study of the whole counsel of God. And we'll do this for a host of reasons, some of which I'll explain this morning. So ironically, as we begin this new series, and I preach a topical sermon on expositional preaching, my hope is that it will, it will explain to you, remind you of the why. Why do we do what we do? Again, this is the first sermon in an eight-week series called Life at Redeemer. It will be a series on our distinctives and direction. And we're very intentionally beginning by reaffirming our commitment to expository preaching. As our confession of faith so beautifully states, and you heard these truths already in, in two of the songs that we sang together this morning. But here's what our confession of faith says. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. That it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. That it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. And the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Brothers and sisters, I hope and pray that the best case we make for expositional preaching is the tangible benefit you receive every week as we open God's word and we hear from God. But this morning, I want to define expository preaching, and then I want to remind you of the chief aim of expository preaching, and finally, I'll conclude by stating some of the benefits of expository preaching, and we'll, we're going to flip all over the Bible today, so be ready. First, the definition of expository preaching. Let me, let me offer you a handful of theological and pastoral definitions of expository preaching, and then we'll see if these definitions reflect the teaching of God's Word. Australian theologian Peter Adams claims that the mere act of preaching itself is the explanation and application of the word in the assembled congregation of Christ. Preaching happens when the word of God is explained and applied to the people of God by those called by God to the task of heralding the word. But what makes preaching expositional? Listen to how the wonderful theologian J.I. Packer answers this question. Expository preaching is the preaching 
Expository preaching is the preaching of the man who knows Holy Scripture to be the living word of the living God and who desires only that it should be free to speak its own message to sinful men and women who therefore preaches from a text. And in preaching, his whole aim is to show his hearers what the text is saying to them about God and about themselves. The great English pastor Charles Simeon wrote, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I must never speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. So brothers and sisters, the goal of expository preaching is to open the Bible and expose the true meaning of the text so that the listeners will hear from God. This is what we saw when we studied Nehemiah, isn't it? Uh, Turn to Nehemiah 8 real quick. Nehemiah chapter 8. The people of God gather to hear the word of God. And then the text describes the Levites and what they did after the book of the law was read. Nehemiah 8, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the job of the one preaching. Open the Bible, read the Bible, explain the Bible, and then trust the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to the people. Friends, this is what I'm trying to do each week. I want to read the text and then give you a sense of what it means. And I work hard to do this in a way that you'll understand. I remember my first preaching class in seminary. Near the beginning of the class, my professor told us a story about preaching in India. Of course, he was preaching with an interpreter, and he expressed to us that he wondered the entire time that he was preaching if the people were really grasping anything he was saying. After he had finished, an older man walked up to him, an older Indian man walked up to him, and in broken English, with a smile on his face, he said only two words. I understand. My professor then said to us, there is nothing greater you will ever hear after a sermon than those two words. I understand. The goal of expositional preaching is to make God's word as clear as possible. In fact, I would argue that the best and most beneficial preaching you will ever hear is not when you walk away amazed at the oratorical skill of the preacher. And it's not when you hear a sermon that offers you obscure details that you find intellectually fascinating. But the best and most beneficial sermons are those that make the biblical text the clearest. 
in a sense, we want you to walk out of here every Sunday thinking, I could do that. Yes, go, do it. That's the point. We're teaching it to you so that you can turn around and teach it to someone else. John Stott once said, all true Christian preaching should be expository. The expositor opens what seems to be closed, makes plain what is confusing, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. There is actually a wonderful example of Jesus doing exactly this in Luke chapter 24. Turn to Luke 24. This is after his resurrection, and it's an account of the resurrected Christ walking with two men on the Emmaus Road. As Luke records the story, the two men walking with Jesus have no idea who he is. So after confronting them, Jesus begins to teach them, and I want you to notice how the text describes what Jesus did. Look at verse 27. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Quite simply, Jesus exposited the Old Testament scriptures, opening what seemed to be closed, making plain what was confusing, and unraveling what was knotted. Not only did Jesus expose the true meaning of the scriptures, but isn't this also what we found throughout the book of Acts so far? What has the pattern of apostolic preaching been in the first 15 chapters of Acts? You could say it's exactly what Jesus did in Luke 24. It begins with Peter's sermon in Acts, Peter's sermons in Acts 2, 3, and 4 then moves to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, then Philip's evangelistic ministry in Acts 8, then Peter's teaching to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. Then we look closely at Paul's explanation of Jesus as the promised Messiah in chapter 13. While the substance of the apostolic preaching was the good news of reconciliation, With God, through Jesus Christ, that message was delivered and explained almost entirely by means of the exposition of Old Testament scriptures. Friends, the early church was established and it grew through the preaching of the apostles who were simply exposing the meaning of the scriptures. That was the recipe Open the Bible, read the Bible, explain the Bible, watch the Holy Spirit work. They faithfully gave themselves to the task of opening what seemed to be closed, making plain what was confusing, and unraveling the knotted. Turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4, as the Apostle Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is serving as a pastor in Ephesus, what instructions does he give him? And remember, the context of chapters 3 and 4, Paul is reminding Timothy that perilous times are coming. It's going to be very difficult. Sin will be running rampant. 
1 Timothy 4.13, the text says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So again, I just mentioned the context of his second letter, but the context of Paul's first letter to Timothy is a warning about false teachers, which is why Paul clarifies the biblical qualifications for church leaders in chapter 3. But then I I want you to think about this for a moment. How can Timothy guard the people of God from being seduced by false teachers and false teaching? How can he ensure that they are not drawn away from the truth? And how can he ensure that he's not drawn away from the truth? Well, how about this? Timothy needs to saturate his own heart and mind with the truth of Scripture. And then he needs to do everything he can to saturate the hearts and minds of God's people with the truth of God's Word. And he can do this by reading the Bible out loud and explaining it. That's what he's told to do. Keep doing it. So in the footsteps of Timothy, this is the job of your elders, brothers and sisters, to bring the word of God to bear on your life so that it shapes you and it protects you. Our God-given task is not, is not, thinking about what Stanley said at the beginning, our God-given task is not to give you what we think you need, but to give you what God says you need. And how should we do that? By faithfully expounding and explaining the text of Scripture, opening what seems to be closed, making plain what is confusing, and unraveling the knotted So before moving on, let me quickly revisit one more part of Andy Stanley's comment regarding exposition. He said, no one in the scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. So friends, Stanley is right only if we ignore the example of Jesus, all the apostles, and everyone like Timothy that the apostles trained. Now that we've defined expository preaching, let's look at the aim. The aim of expository preaching. Our commitment is not just to expositional preaching, but to Christ-centered exposition. So take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul addresses the very serious matter of division within the body of Christ. The Corinthian Christians were attaching themselves to particular leaders, so Paul confronts the arrogance of the people by reminding them of the nature of the gospel and the divinely chosen means of reclaiming the gospel. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is a foolish message declared by foolish and unimpressive people. So, against the backdrop of a society that profoundly valued impressive rhetoric and slick argumentation, what does Paul say? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I, 
when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul would, have, Paul would not have gotten very many invitations to speak at large conferences for pastors, encouraging them Don't be impressive. Don't engage in lofty speech and man's wisdom, but but speak and minister in weakness and in trembling. Now, there's so much that we could say here, but I want to focus on verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does this mean that the entire time Paul was ministering to the Corinthians, he only preached the simple gospel? Did Paul intentionally ignore all the practical matters of the Christian life? Did he refuse to address things like suffering and holiness and generosity, only preaching the simple gospel message? Well, D.A. Carson answers these questions for us and makes clear exactly what Paul is asserting. Carson says, this does not mean that Paul was devoted to blissful ignorance of anything and everything other than the cross. No. What he means is that all he does and teaches is tied to the cross. He cannot talk for long about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. Friends, if preaching is going to be faithful to the pattern we find in God's word, then the message from beginning to end must be connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this does not mean that all preaching needs to be evangelistic in order to be Christian. But it does mean that to be Christian, preaching does need to be Christ-centered. Nothing should be divorced from the redemptive work of Christ. So 1 Corinthians begins with Paul's affirmation of the primacy and centrality of Christ. Now flip forward to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Look with me at verse 1. Sort of bookending this letter. Now I, would, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I want you to see again the central importance of Christ in the preaching of Paul. The gospel is where he begins and ends, and nothing he says in between is disconnected from the gospel. In fact, this is Paul's commitment 
because this is the very nature of God's entire written revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures speak of Jesus. Notice again verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When the text refers to the scriptures, this is the common way in which New Testament authors refer to the Old Testament. So don't miss this. The Apostle Paul is not only affirming the central importance of Christ's death and resurrection, but he's claiming that this is what the Old Testament is all about. He taught the gospel from the pages of the Old Testament. So is Paul introducing a new idea here? No. Remember Luke 24. Remember the example of the apostles throughout Acts. But specifically, friends, Luke 24, Jesus walked with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And what, what does the text say he did? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus walked through the Old Testament scriptures showing how they point to him. In other words, Jesus doesn't finally show up in the Bible when you get to the New Testament. No, all the scriptures speak of him. Now, we, that, that's obvious to us when we come upon certain texts in the Old Testament. When you come to Isaiah 53, you know the suffering servant is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. But I would argue that beyond the obvious Old Testament texts that point to Christ, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says, every story whispers his name. Tim Keller has so helpfully explained how the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And I want you to listen to what he says. And I want this to lead you to worship. Keller writes, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that was comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. 
Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it for themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't risk just leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. Brothers and sisters, It's not just that the Old Testament points to Jesus, but the Old Testament over and over displays the majesty and beauty of the gospel. So our hope and prayer is that every week as we open our Bibles together, you will see the riches of Christ on every page, that you will hear of his saving grace in every sermon, that you will understand more fully how every story whispers his name. So we've defined expository preaching. We've reminded ourselves of the primary aim of expository preaching, and that is to present Christ in all of his fullness, in all of his sufficiency, in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, I want to conclude by offering you some benefits of expository preaching. Benefit number one, expository preaching keeps pastors from skipping over certain parts of the Bible. It forces us to preach the whole counsel of God. This is what Paul encouraged the Ephesian elders to do in Acts 20. Just listen to the text. Paul testifies of his own ministry and their therefore challenges the Ephesian elders. He says, for I did not shrink, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Systematically, systematically preaching the entire Bible to you, brothers and sisters, is an essential component of our care for you. We love you. We want to care for you. We want to care for you in the best way we can. And Scripture instructs us one of the best ways we can care for you is to give you the Bible. This leads us to benefit number two. Expository preaching is an incredibly loving way 
to shepherd the people of God. Because it ensures that week after week you will get the infinite wisdom of God rather than the mere opinions of man. Consider the text you heard read earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, Paul speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, every bit of it, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore, it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching. That's telling us what's right. For reproof, that's telling us what's wrong. For correction, that's putting us back in place after we've been knocked over. And for training in righteousness, this is how you go on from this place to walk in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, the word of God is sufficient for the entire process of spiritual growth. From salvation to sanctification to service. So no matter where you are in that process, what you need is the Bible. So we can come up here with confidence every Sunday knowing if we stick to the text, if we preach the text, we'll be giving you something that's profitable. We'll be giving you what you need. Everything God calls you to, whether it's suffering and loss or blessing and abundance, the Word of God is profitable for you. It's what you need most. Benefit number three. Expository preaching reminds us that the source of a preacher's authority is not found in himself. It's not found in his gifting, his age, his education, or his experience. But his authority rests in the God-breathed text of Scripture. Again, the preacher's job is to bring to the people the very words of God. In fact, just let me remind you again how J.I. Packer says this, because I can't improve on it. Expository preaching is, is the preaching of the man who knows Holy Scripture to be the living word of the living God and who desires only, and who desires only that it should be free to speak its own message. Expository preaching makes sure that the people of God hear the voice of God. That's why the title of the sermon this morning is Word of God Speak. The Word of God is speaking for itself. Benefit number four. Don't you wish you knew how many there were? There are just five. So benefit number four. Expository preaching cultivates a reverence for the Word of God. Someone who was with us just a couple of weeks ago, it was their first time here at Redeemer. Uh, Jason Harrison and I were with this person, and they said, your church 
has a real reverence for the Word of God. There's, there's not much someone could say that would be more encouraging than that. Expository preaching cultivates a reverence for the Word of God. We see this in Nehemiah. As Ezra ascends the pulpit to read the Word, the people stand to their feet. That's why we do it. Together they say, Amen. They raise their hands in reverent worship. The only thing that's happening is the Word of God, the law, is being read. That's their response. We gather each week as the people of God, and at the very center of our worship and celebration is an open Bible. And may it always be that way. Finally, benefit number five. We've already covered this this morning, but expository preaching serves both believers and unbelievers. By keeping a preacher tethered to the inspired text of Scripture, what is exposed, what is brought out, is not only the true meaning of the text, but also the loving and gracious Christ to which every text points. So yes, we preach expositionally because our task is to equip you as the people of God to do the work of the ministry. But we also know as we faithfully work through the text that Christ will be propped up and those that hear will see him. And our hope is that they would turn in repentance and faith. So there's a song that we sometimes sing right before the sermon and I... I just want to encourage you to make this your prayer as you arrive here each week. This is what it says. Prepare our hearts, O God. Help us to receive. Break the hard and stony ground. Help our unbelief. Plant your word down deep in us. Cause it to bear fruit. Open up our ears to hear. Lead us in your truth. Your word is living light upon our darkened eyes. Guards us through temptations. Makes the simple wise. Your word is food for famished ones. Freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. Come, speak to us today. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. O oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Let's pray.